Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Madam's Cast. I'm going to try not to say that it's an exciting new episode of the Madam's Cast because I'm aware that I say that every single time. It's not my fault. I think it's exciting. Uh, maybe that is my fault. But it's definitely exciting today, even though I said I wasn't going to say it was exciting because we've got somebody even more well known than you guys out there listening on the show today. Now, as you know, we've had a bit of a run of foodie authors. We've had a few farming experts. I've got a distillery expert on the way. We've got happy guts. We're all sort of all over these foodie conversations at the moment. We've been changing the world for the better, um, left, right and centre. And today is no different at all. Uh, Today, I would like to welcome to the show, if she's there, the uh, very fun and lovely to talk to, Kate Humble. Are you there? I am. I am here with my mug of tea and slightly cold feet, um, which was a mistake. I should have put socks on. Um, you could put your feet in your teacup. <laughs> sadly, sadly, something that obviously all your listeners are desperate to know is that my feet are quite large and therefore okay. probably won't get into my teacup. And also, okay. I'm not sure they would enhance the flavour of my tea. <laughs> Sometimes the obvious answer is not the best one. <laughs> and go along with that. I'll go along with that. Okay, well, I'm excited uh, to chat to you and I'm really grateful for you to, to taking the time out to come and talk to me um, about the things you'd like to change about the world of food, but also um, about your new book. And there's a bit of a story here because there's definitely this thing, right, where my listeners will be sitting out there going, hang on a minute, has he got Kate Humble on his podcast? No, I know they're not. They're going to be thinking, they're going to be thinking, what does Kate Humble know about food? And what do you mean she's written a blinking book about it? I okay, mean, that's okay. outrageous. That's okay. what they're going to be thinking. Okay, okay. Well, this is this is all good chat because I think those are two sides of the same coin. Okay. okay. Um, so what I would like to say is that the reason that we're connected is because about five years ago, I wrote a recipe about Welsh cakes. Yes. Yes, and, and, is... I, and then I stole it. <laughs> no, no, what's happened is that it's created ripples in the space-time continuum somehow. And this is why I really love food and, and littering the world with my thoughts on recipes is because you never quite know where those little fish are going to swim off to. Um, and one of those fish swam into your kitchen via the lovely Essie stove makers, I think. It did. And, 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 and from there into your cookbook, which is exciting. Yes. Yes. Well, so, I mean, it is it is outrageous plagiarism, really. Um, uh, but then but then sort of in a way, most of my cookbook is. Should I be admitting that to anybody at all? Um, so. So, yeah. Sh- shall I shall I um, shall I give you the, the, the kind of well, I, I probably ought to explain why on earth I am, I am now um, uh, sort of trespassing into the world of food. Well, um, it's not—it's not really my world. I mean, you know, I've been involved, obviously, uh, in in farming and producing food, and I really love eating it, um, which I think, you know, kind of allows me perhaps a kind of uh, a, a, a sort of restricted view um, of the food stage. Um, but it does feel slightly. Um, I'm I'm st- I I'm still feel slightly kind of. Um, uh, I don't know what it's sort of in awe of of suddenly being kind of thrust into this 
world and um or, or or kind of having the temerity to 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 write a cookbook and the reason that i did was that um during during one of the many lockdowns we've all lost track haven't we of, of how many lockdowns there have been um but during one of the many ones when when tv stations were slightly desperate for uh, for content um uh, the, the lovely folk at channel five um approached me and said um look you've you've got a farm um, and people are quite enjoying programs on farms at the moment um, and also you married quite well didn't you you've got a you've basically got a director and a cameraman for a husband so maybe the two of you could make a series on your farm and by the way could you do a bit of cooking on that series and I went what do you mean do a bit of cooking um, and you know and I I I cooked him in the way that any kind of perhaps normal person that grew up when I grew up cooks. So, you know, I grew up in the 70s. Um, I know it's a time that dinosaurs walked the earth. Um, and also that, that there weren't things like, you know, deliveries and takeaways, particularly if, particularly if you lived in a, in a rural area. So my mum cooked. I helped her cook because that's what, you know, that's what you did in those days. And then we would all sit around the table and eat together. So that's my culture of food is very simple. You know, as I say, it was the 70s. So nothing was very elaborate. We ate a lot of shepherd's pie and we ate a lot of crumble. And I didn't have an avocado or a sweet potato until I was about 22 um <laughs> so, you know no one had heard of those things no, so, no. you know we didn't we didn't eat elaborately we didn't cook elaborately but we did cook from scratch there were no ready meals and that is how I've continued to cook and I actually I love cooking I really enjoy it but I would never ever dare to call myself with capitals a cook um you know, a proper grown-up like you, um, and, <laughs> and so, well, you know what I but you know what I mean. I mean, it is it's outrageous. I mean, there's going to be people there sucking their teeth. Of listen, gear. listen, listen, oh, listen, listen. Right now, here is uh, look. I get where you're coming from, right? I totally understand. I actually, I've had a good look through your book, um, and, and and I really like it. And we'll move on to that in a minute. Um, um, I, I'm more or less the same era as you. Uh, in terms of food experience and and had a similar kind of you know my mum cooked and that was it and you ate that or that was that and and that was sort of how it was but to flip this on its head because I can tell you feel a little bit uncomfortable still about this this concept of having written a food book this doesn't necessarily let you off the hook entirely but it's very very true I have come across read and discarded books by far 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 less qualified to talk about it people than you on food okay and I think coming from a farming background having some farming experience and that understanding of food and you know it leads to that sort of simple understanding which so many people try to capture really hard and can't quite manage they over they tend to overdo it so whatever it is you know it translates nicely into your book please don't feel bad about it come on in it's thank well thank thank you very very much indeed well it was as i say i mean i would never have 
I, you know, I, I, I write books, I love writing, but I would never, ever have thought of writing a cookbook. And it was really only um, because when the very first thing I kind of cooked for the telly and for the programme um, was, um, a, was, a, was a soda bread. And the reason that I chose that was because at the time, everybody in the world was making sourdough and and <laughs> you know showing off their perfect loaves all over social media and it was just excruciating yeah. and and I was trying to make sourdough and my lovely friends at the Hobbs House Bakery even sent me one of their I think it's about 150 years old their sourdough starter and said this this will work Kate no it didn't work I killed it I killed <laughs> so many Sourdough starters, literally, if there was a Royal Society for the protection of sourdough starters, I'd be in prison by now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just, you know, there was just no way. And I got so gloomy about it. And eventually my lovely friend Jennifer, who um, who's, a, who's an amazing baker and teaches baking, um, said to me, listen, <laughs> I know you think you're completely incapable of making bread. And perhaps, you know, the sourdough thing or, or indeed anything that involves yeast and proving and patience and a bit of skill is beyond you. But soda bread really isn't. And she showed me how to make soda bread. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I am a domestic goddess. You know, this is this is incredible. So I made that as the, my, the first thing as I made on the telly. And and what was lovely was then the kind of response that I got from viewers going, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't, you've let us off the sourdough hook, um, you know. And, and, I got, and I got lovely photographs from people of their beautiful soda bread loaves. And, oh, fantastic. And, and gradually what happened as the series went out, and, you know, all the food I cooked was basically that, was lovely, you know, was the stuff that I cook and that my friends cook and that we cook for each other and that I learnt from my mum or that I stole from people like you. Um, but they were lovely easy recipes that didn't involve specialist kits. I don't know what to do with a blinking piping bag and I don't even know how to say sous vide, let alone what it does. Um, you know, there was nothing specialist required. Um, as I say, no fancy ingredients. If you live in the middle of nowhere, you can't get fancy ingredients very easily. Um, and, and, and it was actually the viewers of the programme who said, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I was like, no, I really shouldn't write a book. And anyway, I'm supposed to be writing another book. I had a different book commissioned. Yeah, yeah. As it, as as you know, blinking COVID kind of uh, uh, stamped its way across our lives. It became very obvious that the book that I was supposed to write, I wasn't going to be able to do the research for. It was just, you know, I I needed to get out. I needed to go and meet people in their homes, and that clearly wasn't going to happen. So I said to my my very lovely, very very grown up and and very patient publisher, um, look, I'm really sorry. I just I know that you've commissioned this book, but I don't think I can do it. And she said, No, I completely understand. Let's you know shelve it and 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 move it for a, a, another year and i said okay lovely and i said however there is this sort of mad idea that's been coming in from from the viewers of, of escape to the farm that no oh, this is this is exactly what a commissioning agent wants to hear this is it like, no, no no wait till you hear what she said so i said you know there's something that they're saying maybe i should do a cookbook and she went 
no, you really shouldn't. And I went, no, no, why not? And she said, well, because first of all, it's a really overcrowded market. And secondly, you are not known for food. And I thought, yeah, actually, both those points are very fair and 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 totally accurate. Um, and uh, and 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 then she sort of just as a sort of by the by went. I mean, obviously, if you're kind of interested in just putting a proposal together, I mean, I'm not going to stop you. You can do that. I'd need eighty to hundred recipes, and I need it in two days because that's when my next sales meeting is. Mm. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> you've laid down a gauntlet. I'm going to give it a go. So, and it was, in a way, it was the kind of, it was the sort of academic exercise of, of you know, what would I do, you know, in this kind of airy, fairy, fantasy world? What would I write about? How, what would be in my book? What would the recipes be? And I kind of put it together and sent it off with absolutely no expectations. And then at the end of January last year, she came back and went, um, sales team liked it they want it I need it by Easter which was two months and I was filming every single day um so uh to say that I wrote this book in a slightly stressed state is an understatement (laughs) (laughs) well you know I nearly got divorced every day there's nothing like a deadline is there for getting you going oh but uh, I had no idea Tim how unbelievably difficult and dare I say it tedious it is to write a recipe I loved writing the kind of stories around them and and you know where they came from and the provenance of them and all that I loved all that I had no idea you had to write a recipe in the order of the ingredients that you use oh, I know tell me about it it's ridiculous it's you want so to take weird. people on this magical journey through their cupboard and throw yeah. things together and then you get editors writing back to you going how many milliliters oh, oh i know and this, this is the great problem you know you're you're, <laughs> you're you're trying to write about stuff that you've been making since you were knee high to a grasshopper and that your mum's told you and she just says oh fling a few things into a bowl and mix it a bit you know but that's not a recipe <laughs> you can't it turns out you can't get away with just writing fling a few things in a bowl and mix it a bit um no. so yeah it was it was a real eye-opener and I have to say uh in in deference and admiration to uh to proper food writers out there I you know I bow to your um to your unbelievable skill and and patience because I now have insight into just how incredibly difficult it is to write a cookbook well listen to that ladies and gentlemen humble by name humble by nature what a fantastic thing to know about the background of this book. And I'm just going to quickly whiz through the book uh, okay. for the listeners out there, because actually um, this is not the home of promoting people's books, but this one is great and needs promoting and you're here talking about it. So we should do. Um, it takes you on a journey from apples and marmite to chili flavoured sherry. <laughs> and all the way along, I found myself nodding my head and going, yeah, we eat that sort of thing. We eat that sort of thing. I chuck that together all the time. And, and that, But I did go, Apples and Marmite. <laughs> now, Are you have, sure? you, have you tried it? No, because I went, I have got some Marmite and I don't have any apples. Otherwise, I would have tried it. I only got the digital copy of the book this morning. I would have tried it, but um, I did try app, um, pear and Marmite because I had a pear. Mm. And yeah, actually, yeah, I'm there. I mean, maybe that was maybe slightly sweeter. But I remember my uncle 
um, who shall, for the purposes of the podcast, remain nameless. He used to eat marmite and marmalade on toast. It's the whole sweet and sour thing, yeah. isn't it? It kind of just yeah. works. Yeah. Well, I discovered um, my my lovely agent, Rosemary, who is also, you know, uh, very grown up when it comes to the world of food and looks after some proper foodie people um, and is also you know a, a really rather wonderful cook and and foodie herself and um and and she said she said um I'm really delighted that you have a recipe in there for bacon and marmalade sandwiches she said I thought I was the only person she said I don't do bacon I do sausages she said if there's mm. a cold sausage in the fridge I have a cold sausage and marmalade sandwich for breakfast but now I'm going to try bacon um but it was it was a lovely we've known each other for a very long time but it was a, lo- a lovely meeting of minds of that kind of you know mix of the kind of pudding bitter breakfast i.e mm. toast and marmalade and the savory mixing them together well and chili sherry that's definitely happening i mean i'm a big uh fan of sherry i think it's a massively misunderstood drink uh wine in its own right but flavoring a dry sherry with chili oh. i can totally see how that works as a little pepping up of things it it is amazing i mean uh, you know and we should perhaps um uh just in case any of your listeners are thinking oh i'll just have a shot glass of that um it's not necessarily (laughs) the drinking um it is used really as a condiment and i love it you know if you've got a slightly boring soup i mean i i know you would never in a million years tim go and buy a ready-made soup um i'm afraid that every now and then i do go and buy a ready-made soup um and 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 they can be a little disappointing or bland um but you know add a good old glug of chili sherry in there and suddenly it is a a a thing of beauty yeah yeah well my my listener base is broad and some of them will definitely want to try a shot of the chili sherry regardless (laughs) of your advice many of them will drink the sherry before they get a chance to put the chili in it um and, and lots of them will probably be writing in and telling me that they've already made chili sherry and that I should be talking about you know some some other form of chili infused drink but that that's by the by I you know I was genuinely charmed by your book I'm familiar with the photographer's work Mr Montgomery does a great job behind the camera and that that really does a nice job of portraying exactly the things you're saying in the book you know he did he did uh, andrew andrew montgomery who as you say has has worked um with with um many of the people that that you know um we'd i'd never i'd never met him before and he turned up for our first photography day and he wanted to get it was lambing time so it was february it was quite cold and um and i was quite tired because i was doing quite a lot of night shifts in the lambing shed and um um, and and I, as I say, I'd never met him, and he turns up, and he's quite sort of London, um, and, um, and and actually quite annoying. And I was just like, <laughs> I was like, by the end of the day, when he'd let a sheep out of a pen that I had spent ages penning, a really wild sheep that I'd penned up with her lamb, and then he let it out, and I was literally ready to wring his neck. Um, and I thought, this is just not going to work. I can't possibly, possibly work with this man who drives me mad. Anyway, I now obviously love him to bits. Um, and he, he put up with so much of my nonsense. And, you know, given, again, given the fact that I have never been involved in food photography at all. I mean, it's fine. So the book has a sort of mixture of photography that is, you know, stuff from the farm and, and me kind of walking the dogs and some beautiful, uh, you know, bits of landscape uh, from, from, from our area, from around here. 
Um, but in, in a, a, of course, you know, the, the main thing is the food photography. And I've, you know, I have no experience of doing that whatsoever. So um, um, and, and he was so patient with me because, you know, we had and there was one particular day where I was feeling really smug because um, we were photographing uh, a Bakewell tart that has fresh raspberries rather than raspberry jam. And um, and, I, and I was looking at the photograph going, I think I think we should just have a couple of extra raspberries in the corner here. And I could see, you know, steam coming out of his ears. And he was like, you know, what the bloody hell do you know? Um, anyway, uh, he was incredibly patient if I said, oh, maybe we should just tweak the fork. And he was always right, but always put up with me going, maybe we should try this. And he'd go, okay, we'll try it. It won't work, but we'll try yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, right. yeah but it yeah. does i have to say all credit to him it it it, it looks at to him and and to lovely jonathan who's the designer at um at gaia who published the book they did a really amazing job the two of them well bravo all of them how fantastic okay um well you know i you know apart from and, and they do they do this in the southwest of england i now live in scotland but they do this in the southwest of england as well I notice in your book that they clearly do it in Wales too, which is they position telegraph poles with no thought for the potential <laughs> that this this vista is going to find itself published in a large format very soon. And, and it's they, they seem to place them merely for the convenience of providing power and telephone lines to properties. It's just I know, infuriating. I know. And, and actually, and actually, you know, the really annoying thing is not only do they do that, but um, the telephones still don't really work that well. <laughs> you know, so. You kind of think the whole thing is slightly, slightly, why are they there? Yeah, what's the point yeah. in that? What's the point what's in that? We, it's like all these things, we have to remember that once upon a time, that was cutting edge technology. It was, and also now that's quite useful when a cow needs a scratch. Yes, there you go. Well, anyone who's now got no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> well, you'll just have to go and buy a copy of Kate's new book. Otherwise, you know, there's no way. And it's called Home Cooked recipes from the farm and it is very much that i'm i'm charmed by it actually so um and not only because it features one of my recipes (laughs) (laughs) i think i pick you up a little bit don't i Oh, I haven't. I've, what I've done is I've managed to resist the temptation to scroll through and find my Have recipe. you? Have yeah. you? That's so restrained. That would be I the know. absolute first thing I would go to. And then, and then, you know, if I didn't like it, would, would basically, I mean, you know, this interview would be terrible. <laughs> well, there's no guarantee it's going to be in a good interview anyway. I mean, <laughs> you've got, you got some washed up old cook on one end of the line who thinks he's allowed to have a, a, a podcast. And, uh, and, and someone who it, it shouldn't be on a food podcast at all. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, the Madam's Castle is a very broad church. You know, you'd be, you'd be allowed in simply for being a farmer. You know? uh, well, so you're, you're all right. You're OK. Um, you're very welcome here. But, you know, lovely as this chat is and I feel like I'm getting to know you and that's really nice um we're gonna have to move forwards into the the sort of the meat in the sandwich if you like um uh, the 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 sort of challenge in the middle of the madam's cast is that you get to change three things about the world of food and that could be about food production it could be about food distribution it could be about the type of carrots you grow in your window box it can be anything you like small medium large helicopter micro zoomed in zoomed out whatever you want that's fine but you need to be able to give an example and we'll have a little chat about it yes Um, you know so if you imagine that we're stood at the edge of you know we're stood at the edge of your beautiful farm and we've got a magical portal through which we can go Mm. takes us to a new dimension 
some expensive special effects happen. And that dimension is exactly the same as the dimension we've just left, only it's more flexible. You can change things about it purely with the power of choice. Okay. I mean, it's such an enormous responsibility, this. Um, and um, and so I'm going to start, I'm going to start with a, a, a small, um, but I think eminently achievable uh, wish, which would be um, for baked beans to be banned forevermore. <sighs> Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, hang on. I'm going to write that down and then we're going <laughs> to dig into it. We're going to dig into why. Okay, baked beans. Yeah. The type in a tin, presumably. Yes. yes. Banned forevermore. Forever. Yeah. Okay, it's taking me a while to write that because I'm writing evermore in capitals and I'm never sure how to stop spelling that. <laughs> um, okay, so baked beans yes. banished yes. forevermore. Yes. Um, right, okay. Clearly, there's been some sort of unfortunate childhood <laughs> incident <laughs> where you found yourself in a baked bean factory and you got trapped in a vat of baked beans. And it was only by the luck of a magic rat scampering across a beam that you were able to be saved. Is that right? I wish that were true because it's much more exciting. But no, the, the only reason is that they are the devil's food and they are disgusting mm. um, and um, no one ever should have to eat them. OK, so actually, um, I'm going to share a little secret with you. Cool. I hate tin baked beans as well. Do you? Do yeah, you? my son thinks they are the greatest food the world has ever seen. And I literally... Uh, I mean, they're they're everything I detest about blandness and I mean, actually, as a as a processed food goes, they're not bad, you know. They're not they're not full of too many modifiers and homogenizers and goodness knows what. But I, this, is, this, this, this isn't this isn't a, a purist protest. This is no. literally me saying they are vile. No yeah. one, no <laughs> one should ever be faced with one of those horrid. Um, kind of, you know, it's the pulpy cardboardness of them in yeah. that revolting sauce, and, oh, yeah. and and no one should have to eat them. And of course, you know, and and I think if if um, I do think there is some uh, some that you inherit from uh, from parents, and 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 perhaps anyone uh, would like to to comment on this, but I do think you. You, you, you know, food taste is is something that is inherited, that is passed down through genes, um, and um, and it turns out, you know, my mum absolutely hates baked beans mm, um, yeah. and can't eat them. And when you know, and at school again, I mean, school dinners in the se- in 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 the in the seventies and the early eighties were really not good. I mean, you know, our, <laughs> our school, I have I, I have memories of, you know, it would be the Monday the Monday school dinner, which was always the same. And it was smash. Remember that? Yeah, smash. yeah. But did, was it served with an ice cream scoop? Did they yes. serve it with an ice cream scoop? Oh my god! Well, no, actually. I mean, I think ours was served with just a trowel because it was just this. <laughs> you know, it was it was like this big lumpy. It was it was sort of like the kind of pebble dash. You know, the sort yeah, of stuff yeah, that yeah. people kind yeah, of yeah, clad yeah, their houses yeah. in. I was there. I was there because like Tuesday, that. Tuesday was green custard. Oh, you see, that's an exotic. No, we had smash and spam and pickle beetroot in cubes, which meant mm. that I couldn't eat beetroot for years. I've had to yeah. wean myself onto beetroot. But yeah. baked beans were always a feature. I think they came out on a Wednesday. And and 
I, you know, and you would say, can I have the smallest amount? And you, I'd have sort of five beans on a plate. And yeah. literally the only way that I could eat them was to swallow them whole like a pill sw- swilled down with water. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Okay, well, look, I mean, on principle, uh, I'm very happy to change the world. I don't see how the world becomes a bad place for the lack of baked beans. No, I'm totally with you on that. And it also means that people can't get um, low welfare, overprocessed meat and hide it in tins of beans and, and flog that as well. So I'm exactly. quite happy with that. Good. But I am going to ask you uh, to do me a favour. There's a recipe in, oh God, here we go. It's going to sound all TV lovey, but there's a recipe in Hugh Fernley Wittingstall's meat book okay. uh, for Boston baked beans. Okay. Yes. Now you rear your own pigs uh, as well. So I'm sure you'll have a bit of salt pork kicking around. Yeah absolutely get rid of the tin beans all you like but i would encourage you to give that recipe a go i mean those baked beans are something heavenly and wonderful so that that in in and of itself is um is my answer to that but absolutely i i can i'm quite happy this potentially could be the end of the madam's cast um because (laughs) i know that that baked beans are very very well loved by many people i know but you Um, know what there is there's spaghetti hoops possibly still uh, which are a perfect substitute no they can go they they i I, (laughs) oh it's my it's not my turn okay no it's not my uh it's not my choices to change you can keep spaghetti hoops if you like that's fine by me so baked beans Banished forevermore. forevermore. Yes. I wonder what, what I wonder what the repercussions of that would be. I wonder if you know I when you change anyone something. Anyone would care or notice. <laughs> I think there are a billion, literally billions of tins of that sold every year. Surely someone likes them. I know, but you know, it's just a default, isn't it? It's like, oh, what should we have? Beans on toast. You know what? It's quicker to scramble an egg and much healthier. Oh yeah, and much that, more delicious. That's true. That's true. Um, okay. All right. Um, I'm going to move on. I, I, I feel the world is a better place without baked beans in it. So uh, I can't come up with. I've tried. I've tried to be journalistic and argue with you about the lack of lack of baked beans, um, and I, I I just can't. I can't find one good reason to keep them other than my 12 year old son Isaac will be happy that he's still allowed to eat them. Yeah. I know. Well, I, do you know what? Make him a Welsh cake. He'll love that. Well, there is that. And, yeah. you know, he's pretty In happy anyway. I mean, they've got no idea. Kids these days, they've got no idea how I've lucky they no are. No idea. They weren't, they weren't eating um, overcooked sow's no. liver with no. raw onions that have been rubbed in gravy browning on a Thursday. <laughs> so they were all right. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Number one, baked beans banished forevermore. <clears throat> Kate Humble's choice. That's fine. Mm. Go on. Right. Mm. Next. Number two. Okay. So number two is something that I've been, uh, I've been thinking about uh, quite a lot. And, um, and it actually, uh, it was a thought process that started when I read um, Dan Saladino's amazing book, Eating to Extinction. Have you read oh, it? That's his, that's his latest one. Uh, I have read the introduction. I, as, if, as I sit here, I am surrounded by I'm food sure. books, I I'm have sure. um, I have a uh, an embargo on uh, on my uh, bookseller account uh, placed there by my wife, uh, <laughs> and um, I, I do my best to circumnavigate it in various different ways. For example, for some reason, I think because I was once stupid enough to not say no, I I tend to end up judging food books for 
uh, various awards. And that means that my house is slowly but surely filling up with them. I've got Eating to Extinction right here next to me on the desk. It's wedged between, uh, what have we got here? Uh, Barbara Hammond's Cookery Explained, which would be definitely a good one for you to get. And Trish Hilfrey and Tom Norrington Davis's Game Cookery book, which uh-huh. was a recommendation from somebody else. And the subtitle to Dan's book is Eating the World's or the World's Rarest Foods and Why We Need to Save Them. Mm. And it's a, it's I haven't finished it yet. I'm about a third of the way in. Um, so I've got it. I'm nearly there. Maybe this chat with you is the last thing I need to, to make sure that I go and read it. It is. I mean, I I have to say I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful book in in all sorts of ways. Um, but it got me thinking. So essentially, just to 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 give your lovely listeners a kind of pricey so they get the sense of it, because it sounds quite doomsday. Mm. Um, and 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 indeed, in some ways, it is because what it looks at is the way that you know generations of government policy uh, of greedy corporations and of consumers uh, wanting ever cheaper, uh, more available food um, at all times of year. Um, in plentiful supply has meant that, um, uh, you know, the majority of the world's food is grown from a a very tiny, uh, limited seed bank. And what that means is that, you know, our our future uh, food security is definitely shaky. Um, However, there are what what is wonderful about the book and what makes you feel actually curiously optimistic reading it is you discover through um, Dan's, uh, you know, wonderful uh, work that he's done over the years, these people that he's met who are doing astonishing things Mm -hmm. um, to save, uh, you know, wonderful varieties of everything from, you know, fruit and veg to grains to, uh, to, to types of drink to all these sorts of things. So, so actually, it's a very uplifting um, and empowering book in in lots of ways. Um, But when I was reading it, and I actually interviewed Dan for the Hay Festival um, about the book, um, and it struck me that actually, um, you know, and, and, and this is something I'm sure you've talked about a, a huge amount on this podcast is is the 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 level of disconnect that um, that we have um, with our food, where it comes from, how it's produced. Um, we don't really think about it. And part of me thinks that that is because of the way that most of us and I include myself in this, most of us buy the majority of our food. And, um, you know, we go to a supermarket and we just pile the things into the trolley. We do it as quickly as possible. We don't really think about it. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, we we then go through the checkout, pay an inordinate amount of money, um, bring it home, shove it into the cupboard and into the fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came up with an idea that I thought that maybe supermarkets should be banned from selling any fresh produce. And wow. by doing that, by banning supermarkets from send, selling anything fresh, so they can do, they can have, you know, they can have carte blanche on, you know, washing powder and loo paper and all and fre- and dried pasta or whatever it is, they can have all that, but they can't have fresh meat, fresh veg, 
and fresh fish. And that would do, I think, a number of really positive things. First of all, it would reinvigorate our high streets again. So we would have greengrocers and fishmongers and butchers. And we have seen, you know, what was really interesting over lockdown was people actually did think more about what they ate. Mm. And, you know, people were buying direct from producers online and going to farm shops because they were either nervous about going to a supermarket because um, they didn't want to be with lots of people and they were worried about being infected, or um, they wanted, you know, they had a bit more money and a bit more time to think about what they ate. And so, you know, they 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 went to butchers, they went to, as I say, to, to local farm shops, they bought direct from producers online, um, and, and they really enjoyed their food and they really thought about their food. And we all know there is something completely wonderful about going into, you know, a, a shop that is run by somebody who really knows what they're talking about and is in incredibly passionate about it and can and you know I'm we're really lucky we've got an amazing fishmonger here even though we're quite a long way from the sea yeah. um, called Sarah who gets a mention in the book as well in fact um, but she you know she is just absolutely passionate and incredible incredibly knowledgeable about fish really cares about you know its provenance about the way it's fished making sure that it's sustainable and so I can go to her and go right I want to cook some fish tonight but I have no idea what I'm going to do and she'll give me an idea you don't get that in a supermarket so you get this wonderful connection you get a much more greater connection with your food and and you 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 know you celebrate and and um, put in their rightful place these people who have the skills and the knowledge about the type of food that they sell. So that would be the first thing. It would reinvigorate the high street. It would give us a greater appreciation and love of the food that we buy. Yeah. And, and it would cut down on an enormous amount of plastic waste. I thank you. Uh, you know, uh, I'll try and find the special effects <laughs> um, uh, applause button uh, somewhere. Um, okay, well, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, not COVID, not COVID, just a cough. Um, so absolutely, banning supermarkets from selling fresh food. Well, um, I, I like the, the proposed offshoots of that, that you are a proponent of. I certainly don't have any issue issue with that at all. I think, you know, the closer to source that food can be eaten, the greater understanding of it people have. You'll have found that yourself, right? You weren't born farming. No, absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, you've, you've found that and you understand that circle. And, you, you know, that has introduced you undoubtedly to a whole load of new food experiences. Um, I wonder though, so here's the thing, I think supermarkets cannot wait to stop selling fresh stuff. It's expensive for them to do, it's difficult to handle, it's got a short shelf life. I mean, uh, you know, I go on about this a bit, but I think they've all got together a few years ago and went, right, let's make everyone vegan because flogging meat is hard work, it's expensive, it's high risk, it's this, it's that, it's the other. And uh, I'm not I'm not convinced that they haven't got that plan anyway. So. That your wish for, for supermarkets to ban the selling of fresh food may well, may well become true. I think the other side of it, it for me is that, quite frankly, they don't sell any fresh fish. No. Uh, the meat they sell, the vast, vast, vast majority of the meat they sell is not worth having from a point of view of, of the culinary arts. Okay. I'm not trying to diss 
anyone who's farming on a tight margin and trying to keep multiple retailers happy. Okay, I get it. I understand the efficiencies involved for them to make a living. All right, I'm not. I'm not about bashing that. Uh, I'm just not going to do it. But I, I don't buy my meat at a supermarket. It's not for me. Um, thank you very much. Uh, and fresh fruit and vegetables. Yeah, the variety is not really there. Um, if you're lucky, they've got something that was grown in the same country that you happen to be stood in at uh, the time. But very seldom um, will it tell you what county it was made in. Uh, fresh soft fruits being an obvious, uh, an obvious exclusion to the rule. So, yeah, I mean. Uh, short of banning supermarkets entirely, which I, I don't think we're allowed to do. Um, one of the early, my earlier guests, a guy called Tim Woodward, who was the CEO or at the time was the CEO for the Country Food Trust. Mm. He had a very interesting idea of making supermarkets not-for-profit organisations. Oh, well, yeah. I don't think anyone would run any then. <laughs> Lovely idea. Yeah, it feels yeah. a bit utopian to me. Okay, all right. Well, then, okay. Well, so point two: ban supermarkets from selling fresh food for the reasons you've outlined, and they are greater localism for those important foods and lower food miles, and uh, and and less hugely less plastic waste. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The only thing that goes in the the landfill bin in my kitchen is plastic wrapping from stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's literally the only thing that now gets thrown away. Everything else is either recycled, composted, or repurposed. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've got to get rid of it, haven't we? We've got to get rid of it. We've okay. absolutely got to get rid of it. Yes. All right. All right. Um, okay. Uh, I'm with you on that. All right. Uh, well, I mean, great, great. That's a great idea. We've had lots of ideas around supermarkets, but I've never had, we've never had that one. Uh, and I like that. That's a different quirky angle on it. I'm going to go with it. I like it. Would you allow them to sell milk? No. <clears throat> no, you can get milk from a butcher or from a greengrocer. Nice. Or from a farm shop. Got it. Okay. Um, all right. or, with my devil's or, advocate. From, you know, there's lots of, I mean, I know it obviously depends where you live, but also there are lots of wonderful dairy farms now with their own vending machines. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's one near us. And when we're passing... We always go in there. We know we're going to pass. So we put the bottles that we bought from them in the car and we fill up there. Mm. Um, but I guess the only, I think what we need to support this idea is some hubs so that local producers can get together in the car park of the supermarket and sell their wares so that we're not creating more journeys. Well, I, that's that's very true. But, but you know, we um, uh, our, our local producers, so the Y Valley producers. Yeah, uh, let's big them up. Let's big them up because they are absolutely magnificent. And they, um, when uh, the first lockdown happened, um, they got together. And, and, you know, they're a pretty disparate bunch who, who make all sorts of different things from preserves to gin to honey to mead to, you know, whatever. Um, uh, bread, all sorts of cheese, um, and, <clears throat> and and they knew each other because they sold at local markets and that kind of stuff. 
But essentially, they were all little independent businesses, um, most of them not much bigger than kind of kitchen table businesses, really. Um, And uh, in response to lockdown, and again, to people thinking, I don't really want to go to supermarkets, they all got together and within two weeks created a website where you could buy directly from them. Um, You then drove to exactly, as you say, a central hub in our little local town. Um, And they would have a box with all their stuff in it. So it would be all the mixed producers. They would Mm. have got together, put everything in one box and they would load it into the boot of your car. You didn't even need to get out of your car. And, um, and you know it was it it really worked it worked for them it worked for the consumer it was a brilliant brilliant initiative um and you know they it hasn't been able to continue which is a oh, real shame that is a shame um, but but what has continued is uh the heightened awareness of the number of really great artisans um and producers that we have in this area and there are now other farm shops and other outlets that are looking to support them um and to to make sure that their produce is 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 more widely available and and so so it has been a really i think a really useful and constructive and positive um, outcome brilliant fantastic so point number two ban supermarkets from selling fresh food because of all the brilliant reasons you've just given us for that to be a good idea i've failed once again to journalistically argue with you in any useful way <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm sure everyone i'm sure everyone's used to that um i i, I sort of agree actually I, I, I do think the supermarkets have got a role to play in the future of retailing food in the uk i don't there's any doubt about that apart from anything else they control the marketplace at the moment so uh, i i get that they're here to stay not going to go anywhere but I, they are very very savvy and if people start making different choices and calling them out on stuff they will change their practices very very quickly so um uh, fair play to everyone for, for getting involved with that and brilliant news about the wild y valley producers some of whom some of whom i think i probably know um of old which is great and and what a fantastic story about the community pulling together not only to provide a great service for people who need it but to, to sort of make sure that the food supply is is you know joined together so we'll move on from from point two uh to your final thing and you don't you know it's a bit like the aladdin scenario you're not allowed to wish for more wishes okay Mm. you Mm. get your three things to change Mm. and then we've got to step back so what's your third thing uh get rid of defra Oh, all of a sudden we've gone all political. Okay, so well, DEFRA no, being the Department of the Department on. of, of um, uh, Environment, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. There we go, because they they used to be something else, didn't they? They did used to be something else. Who yeah, can, who can remember what they were? No, but, not me. Um, but get rid of DEFRA. Okay, yeah. here we go. So the thing about and and this, it I mean, it isn't political because this isn't um, uh, me. Um, uh, accusing any particular political party of wrongdoing. Um, But the great problem with having a government department dictating uh, the way that farmers manage their land, um, produce food, um, is that um, by their very nature, uh, by, by the nature of it being part of a political system, it's incredibly short termist. Mm. Um, so, you know, environment ministers, as we know, come and go uh, in the blink of an eye. Um, some of them, thank God, uh, we never see the light of the, their light of day again. But 
essentially, you know, uh, DEFRA policy might be in place for kind of five years maximum, and then it mm-hmm. changes again with a change of government or a change of minister. And um, anyone who has had anything to do with growing anything or looking after any land, even if it is your own garden and not a farm, will know that nature doesn't respond that quickly. Things take time. You have to understand your land. You have to get to know it. You have to nurture it. You have to know what, how it works, you know, where the sun falls on it, um, how the rain responds to it. You can't have a one-size-fits-all for every farm. You can't have a one-size-fits policy uh, for every piece of land in the UK. It simply doesn't work. And what you definitely can't do is dictate to farmers what they can grow or what their stocking value, uh, stocking density should be um, or, or, or any of those things and then change your mind five years later Mm, because mm. it doesn't work and that's why farmers spend 365 days of the year trying desperately to produce food for us which is a deeply thankless task no one ever thanks them all they do is get criticism and um and they are never ever going to make any any sort of living at all because it's their their working practices are constantly interfered with and disrupted sorry i'm just making a note yeah uh well once again (laughs) once again okay um before i attempt to um to argue with you uh on this um I, I want to make it clear I'm only arguing with this <laughs> because I feel like I need to make some effort to, to not let you steamroller it through um surely we can't have no you know surely we can't have no restrictions or legislation whatsoever on land use for agriculture that that rings a whole different set of alarm bells for me so getting rid entirely of someone at a governmental level being responsible for maximum and minimum inputs and outputs, um, what can be used and what can't be used in terms of agrochemicals, what can be used and what can't be used in terms of, um, you know, sheep per hectare, whatever. I, you know, I'm slightly nervous of a completely... Why? They don't know anything. Most of these people, they don't. don't. They're not the ones on the land. They're not the ones who understand how these things work. And actually, you know, I'm going to go back to Dan's book. Um, uh, He's not paying me, I promise you. Um, I'm going to go go back to Dan's book because when you read it, what you realise is that um, the mess that our food industries in and the and the way we you know the the all the things that are wrong with the way we eat and the way that our foods produced comes down to a great deal of it comes down to government policy um and you know and it's it's government now it may be that they had absolutely our best interests at heart i'm not saying that you know everything defra um, has done over the generations that it's it's existed or in one form or another 
Mm. have been have met have have been done you know with any sort of malevolence at all that's not what i'm saying but what i'm saying is that you know they are the wrong people to dictate uh how land is used and to tell farmers to do this and that so you know just a really a really basic um uh um uh, example is uh you know the reason that um we are now in uh, uh we're having a wheat crisis and i'm sure you know about this but 95% of the world's wheat that is grown is one variety of mm. wheat common wheat mm. or red wheat right yeah. and um it turns out that uh that wheat was was effectively um selectively bred post world war 2 to uh, respond to a very hungry world so mm-hmm. you know the reason for for developing it absolutely rock solid you can't argue with that the problem is that it was developed and rolled out and then monetized in a way uh or, or to the detriment of every other sort of wheat and mm-hmm. now we find ourselves in a position where one of the main staple food crops is at risk from climate change it you know yields are going down and we don't have uh, a a a solid backup plan yet um there are lots of people scrabbling around trying to look at crop wild relatives and and um and other vari- old varieties of wheat that may be more disease resistant and more resistant to climate change but yes. essentially that decision by defra or by you know ministers at the time albeit you know totally understandable and laudable have had this very uh long term um dangerous effect similarly post world war 2 um farmers were encouraged to uh to drain all their land so bogs were were drained um uh ditches were filled in because they wanted as many animals on the land as possible um mm-hmm. and then suddenly now you know when land is flooding and everything they're going oh well it's the bloody farmers because they've filled in all their bogs and there's mm-hmm. nothing to hold the water um and and this is the thing that makes me so angry is that it is the people who work hardest it is the people at the coal face who get the rap and it's not their fault they are being told by somebody who doesn't actually have that hands-on experience what to do with their land and how to manage it and i don't think that is the right way of going about it well i'm not only told but financially penalized if they don't yes. by not qualifying for the subsidy that their neighbors getting so if you if you were a farmer in the 60s and you thought actually i don't want to drain my peat bog i don't think that's a good idea but matey boy next door is going to get an extra 1000 pounds a hectare cuz he's doing it yeah. how can i compete cuz he's then going to spend that money on better machinery or new fences exactly. and you know i get it i do i totally get it once you start meddling there's no way to stop yeah. um i i still i still have slightly nervous about no about zero regulation agriculture but that's probably just natural nervousness of the english about not having some sort of regulation for something i think that's just genetic um you know, i certainly you... have never met a farmer that doesn't know how best to farm their land that's for sure and i think i think you know again if you if you if 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 consumers were able to be more involved and more uh informed you know i mean people are 
skeptical about things like uh, like GM, but that's because that's something that's talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation around it as well. Um, you know, things like neonicotinoids, no one had heard of those until, you know, they started to be talked about. But, you know, we don't know the half of the way that our food is produced or the regulations uh, that are put in place, the amount of herbicides and pesticides that are still used, and that is dictated by the government. So I think, you know, if consumers were more involved in, I mean, it comes back to all the things we've talked about. It comes back to the way we buy food, you know, and 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 being able to talk more directly to people who are who have a who have a much more visceral connection with, with either the food that they're selling because they produce it themselves or they know the producer. But then, as consumers, we can say, "Well, I don't want to buy something that has, you know, been you you know that has been produced, mass produced, or um, has been pumped full of hormones, or has you know has been sprayed, or whatever it is." is and 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 that's why i think you know farmers would then be able to respond much more to consumers rather than being dictated to by government as long as they're not farming baked beans as long as they're not farming baked beans because <laughs> that is the regulation that we need to keep so yeah. defra all they're all they're left with really is it doesn't, sure it, that... you know that doesn't that doesn't have to come from defra that's just comes from me when i'm president of the world <laughs> Kate Humble for President of the World. Okay, right. Well, to wrap that up, I would agree. And anyone interested, it, it, actually, in some of the ways that's affected different types of farm, um, there's there's some interesting um, books out there. Definitely worth picking up anything with James Rebanks written. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, um, my goodness. He, English, he pastoral. Weaves, yeah. English pastoral made me cry. He, um, he weaves a great story about how... Um, how that sort of change in agriculture has affected uh, particularly yeah. difficult to farm marginal land, which exactly. which is which exactly. is ultimately what he's a lot of people a, he's have. A, he's a genius, that man. I've never met him, but I want to marry him. Sorry to his. And I'm gonna. Life. I've got to make a confession, okay? Because I'm a big um, Dan Barber fan as well. The reason I think deep down that I haven't got around to finishing Dan Saladino's book yet is that I wish I'd written it. Yeah. It's got. It, he's got a brilliant talent for bringing together all this stuff that I already know. Uh, but putting it into a format that, it, I mean, he's just a fantastic journalist, basically, yeah. And, yeah. and I take my hat off to him completely. Yeah. So well done, well done him for doing it. And that is a, that's what these books need to do. They need to be the distillation of this complex world um, uh, that you need to understand all on your own otherwise. And it is well worth picking one of them up. Well, I'm with you. We can get rid of regulation on agriculture um, via the government, if you like. That's that's fine Thanks. by me. Thank you. Um, they're gone. You've been uh, very amenable. I'm very that's all right. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> no worries at all. If at the same time we could close the revolving door on the health ministerial ship, I'd also be quite happy as well. But yeah. Um, yeah, just any policy that lasts longer than a single government would, would really help people who are trying to do incredible things in difficult places. Um, right. I think that's it. You've changed three fantastic things about the world of food. And, you've, yeah, and what I really like is that you haven't, at any point, sounded like I might be able to make you change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, fantastic. So, um, we're unfortunately now we have to step out of this world that you've now massively improved, and back into the standard reality which we just exited yeah. um, some some forty minutes ago. Um, so I'm sorry about that, but I have to drag you back to reality, and hopefully, you know, we can from reality continue working towards making these these dreams and goals reality yes okay excellent um so 
Better. That's much better. Oh my goodness. How exciting. Um, so are you feeling slightly more? I think you should, you should definitely be feeling, uh, if nothing else, you should be feeling vindicated that you were definitely allowed to write a food book after that chat. Well, I, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that I can, um, write a good recipe, but, uh, but I do, but I, you know, I do, I, I care about food. I love, as I say, I love eating food. Um, I love, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in food and, um, you know, and I, I suppose through, through taking on the farm, I have a, a much greater understanding and appreciation now of the people who, um, provide us with the food that we cook and eat. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not quite so, um, so much of an imposter that I thought. Yeah, good. Well, that's good. Um, well, in 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 you know, in all honesty, I think the food, the, the book is great. I'm going to stop banging on about it. It's called Home Cooked Recipes from the Farm. You'll all be able to find it in the usual places you go and buy your books. Please think about where that place is and um, pick up a copy because actually, I think it's stuff full of stuff that you'll enjoy picking up and throwing together. Now, Kate, before I let you go back to your wonderful farm. Um, I have got three remaining tasks for you. You have to nominate somebody to appear as a future guest on the Madam's cast. That's just me being lazy in my research, but it works. So they don't have to come on. They don't have to come on. Okay, we don't turn up and um, and, and at gunpoint force them to do it. But anyone that you think would be great, um, let us have that. And then you get to choose a food book and something to drink while you're reading it that you would have in your desert island scenario. <sighs> It's so hard, isn't it? Well, so um, nominating um, someone to come on, I am, well, I mean, we've mentioned him already. I would have James Rebanks, I think. Whoa. Okay, no arguments from me on that one. I'm yeah. up for having James Rebanks. And do you know on. what? I think, and I think he would definitely do it. Hey? And I think you he think would he'd definitely do it? do it, yeah. Whoa, okay. Well, now he's got to now he's got because to. It, Kate Humble said he would. Yeah. <laughs> We've got him. Okay, fantastic. Well, that is a great nomination. And uh, yeah, I definitely follow that one up. That sounds fantastic. Uh, I would love to chat to the man. Um, uh, I liked his first book as well. I thought that was quite good too. Um, and I think it's interesting, actually. I've chatted to a few people recently that have uh, a part of their way of making their farming work better is that they've had to get jobs doing other things yeah. so that the farm doesn't have to be so intensive um and i think that's quite interesting uh, and i hope that that will swing back the other way and that as less intensive farming becomes the norm and more resilient practices take over more like they used to um less extra work outside the farm will have to be done but that's a that's another huge socio-economic shift required so it let's is. not dive back into that one okay james reback's not nominated happy mm -hmm. days now i've got to pre-warn you with the food book thing yeah. you're not allowed to list a whole load of books that you might take with you <laughs> okay All right. one or two i might let slip through the net but you know if it starts looking like a sort of wish list of food books to buy I'm going to rein you in. So, do you want to start with the book or the drink? Um, I'm going to I'm going to start with the book, 
Um, and um, it's not a new book, um, uh, but it has been a go-to of mine um, for a very for, ever since it came out. Um, and in fact, I was asked uh, many years ago to do um, a Radio Four program called A Good Read, where you choose your favourite books. It's mm. a little bit like Desert Island Discs for books. And um, and I chose this book as one of them and an extract from it, um, a, a beautiful piece of food writing or of just of writing about how to make and eat and enjoy a salad sandwich. Um, and it is Nigel Slater's very first kitchen diary. Uh, that is the second nomination for that book in, in three shows. Yeah. And um uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to have to buy it, aren't I? You are. I'm, it is, I'm, it not, is. A, I'm not a huge Nigel Slater fan. I mean, I like his food. I struggle sometimes with his writing. I don't know why. I probably It's probably just professional jealousy. It is. It, it, well, I uh, ha, have a look at it. As I say, I, I, I just, I love that. I've got various of his books, but that one, I think um, it, it just has uh, the, the, the kind of, the the warmth and um so it, it it somehow exudes warmth and hospitality through its pages and you know the food again is is lovely it's not over complicated as I say you know there's a recipe for a salad sandwich but it's just a it's it 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 is just a a, a book that I feel anyway very happy just to read. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's clearly a, a writer that brings a lot of joy to a lot of people, and quite frankly, anyone that can make a salad sandwich sound appetising yeah. is, you know, they're in. I mean, they're, I, I'm going to have to reassess my. I have to dig deep into my soul and find out what my issues are with Nigel Slater. <laughs> put them to bed. Um, uh, that'll be a fun process for me. Um, I look forward to that. So, whilst you're sitting there perusing uh, or deciding what to put in your salad sandwich, yeah, what are you going to have to drink? Well. You see, now this is this is a real this is a real issue for me because um, I am I'm one of these. I don't, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. You know, you have you have moods, don't you? When your taste buds kind of demand certain things, yeah. Um, and you know, and it might be to do with the weather, or it might be to do with the time of day, or it might mm -hmm. be just you know because you're in that sort of mood. Okay, fine. It's sunny. And it's about four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, well, you see, that doesn't really help because, <laughs> because on a, on a, if you're on a desert island, you don't really care that it's four o'clock in the afternoon. And so a double gin and tonic might be fine. Okay. Um, and, you know, and I love, we're very lucky, there is um, a, a, a wonderful um, gin distiller Um literally in the next little valley to me uh, in the Caprit Valley and it's called Silver Circle Distillery and they make beautiful beautiful Y Valley gin with local botanicals um, so as a desert island drink that would be lovely because it would remind me of home um, uh, and, and and it would obviously have to have very very excellent tonic none of your cheap crap um, uh, but I would need an endless supply of lemons or you know or limes and lots of clinky ice um, which okay. all of which might be problematic on a desert island um, no, no, no. I mean you could have washed up up on a on a fully serviced yacht with all that kit on oh, okay. it. I mean, yeah. you know, there's no there's okay. no um, there's no 
there's no limit to, to necessarily to the available things. I mean, you're allowed a drink. I mean, yeah. you get to choose the drink. I feel I feel like if I, I was to then say, well, you can't have ice in it, I'd feel like a bit, you know, I was well, pushing it a wouldn't bit be too a, far, it, to be honest. You know, it wouldn't be a gin and tonic really without ice, would it? I mean, let's let's. Well, yeah, a lesson there for a friend of mine called Rupert who constantly runs out of ice at important moments. Oh. But we'll, um, we'll leave Rupert. that story for another day. Rupert's yeah, Rupert. Well, actually, his name's Charles. His, his middle name is um, Rupert. So, but, yeah, so gin and tonic would... would would be one um but you know then <laughs> then then, then you know then somebody says the word cider and you go oh actually a pint of cider a pint of really good welsh cider would be would would you know i mean it just might it might be the thing that actually is better than a gin and tonic um at on a particular day and then okay no, 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 but there just has to be one more. You've said it's four o'clock in the afternoon and it's sunny. So, you know, you've got a sodding drinks trolley going on now. You've got to have a great big mug of tea. Okay. Right. So we've got to come up with a cocktail using gin, tea and cider. Now, cider and gin together is a dog's nose, but how we get tea into this, I've got no idea. Oh, there'll be, you know, there'll be, we could have, we could have, you know, lapsang infused gin. Okay, fine. All right, we'll crowbar those three into your final. (laughs) (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) Okay, well, since we were so keen on the ice in the tonic, are you a cider with ice person? No, oh, God, no. Absolutely Ah. not, no. There we go. No, none of that. You, you heard and, it here. And, and first, any of those, folks. any any of those drinks that purport to be cider and actually just sort of alco pops, those are not allowed either. They've got to be. <laughs> it's got to be proper, slightly cloudy. You know, possibly just from some kind of dodgy barrel in in the back of somebody's lambing shed. Look, look, you had an opportunity to change three things about the world of food and drink, and one of them definitely wasn't. Uh, banning alcopop like ciders. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining. You see that your your listeners are so discerning that they wouldn't even consider uh, an alcopop fruity nonsense as a cider, Absolutely and not. therefore I didn't even need to mention it. Absolutely not. And also, you know, they are also now well aware that I've effectively lost complete control of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Kate's taking over. She's breaking the rules left, right and centre. Uh, and, and you know, all that remains for me to do is to thank you sincerely for coming on. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, I've enjoyed having a chat with you and getting to know you. It's been great. Well, it's been absolutely lovely. And if you ever want to uh, visit the other bit of the Celtic fringe, um, pop down to Wales anytime. I'll make you a Welsh cake. That sounds like an offer I cannot refuse. I will be doing just that at my earliest uh, opportunity whenever I'm somewhere near Wales, um, which isn't that far from northeast Scotland, is it? No, not really. No, 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 no. as the crow flies, as yeah. they say. Well, and also, Kate, you know, if you find yourself in Scotland, come come and have a try of my newfangled pheasant haggis and see how you get on Oh, with my goodness, that is definitely an invitation I'll be taking up. I'm going to be in Scotland in a couple of weeks, so um, I'll come and knock on your door. <laughs> People always say that. And then they say, oh, this is where we are. How far is it to you? And I go, uh, further than you've already driven from England. <laughs> and then they go, oh, man, maybe, maybe. 
make it up this time. <laughs> but then you never know, Kate. If you are up in, in Scotland, do let me know. It'd be great to see you. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Not at all. Listen, best of luck with the book launch. I think it's coming out on the 3rd of February 2022 and will be available from all ethical and suitable book purchasing sources. <laughs> I'm off to go and stuff some chilies in a bottle of sherry. Excellent. Don't forget to prick them first, dear. <laughs> what the what the bottle of sherry? Oh, no, I see. Oh, are they fresh chilies or dried chilies? Fresh. I haven't got fresh chilies. It's like, it's February. Well, haven't you got some growing on your windowsill? Call yourself. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I've got some dried ones from last year. No, oh, well, never mind. Look, yeah. We're just wittering now. I'll yeah. boot you off the podcast. Nice to meet you, Kate. Thanks ever so much for coming on. Bye. Absolute pleasure. Bye, 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 bye.